Thank you for downloading this Hay Festivals podcast. For more information about the Hay Festivals globally and to access our archive, please visit hayfestival.org. Thank you. Um, hello. Um, are you, you found a seat. Good. Um, hello, everybody. Thank you all very much for coming um, to what's going to be a wonderful hour with um, Dame Carol Black, who is part of our Cambridge series. And thank you. This is in association with Cambridge University. Carol is a dame. She's the president of Newnham College. Did you say president? Principal. Principal of Newnham College. Uh, she was also the only the second woman to become the president of the Royal College of Physicians. She is a doctor. She's also the author of now three uh, commissioned government reports around the areas of health and work. Um, the specific one we're here today to talk about is the review into what's your actual wording here, the impact on employment outcomes of drug and alcohol addiction and obesity. Um, tell me firstly, what was the, because it's had a slightly tricky journey this, what was the, first of all, the genesis and then the journey of this report before we try to unpack what's in it? Um, the genesis of the report, it was in the Con Conservative Manifesto for the 2015 election that if a Conservative-led government uh, came to be, then I would do an independent review into the impact of employment outcomes um, on drug addiction and obesity. Um, so it was commissioned July 2015, with a deadline given to me of March 2016. <laughs> it was ready by about the first week of April, but then it ran into... Um, a whole host of blocks because there was local elections in Perda, yep. Scottish elections in Perda, and then the EU referendum. Right. And then I had to go back through the whole cycle with um, the new government of getting ministerial approval, uh, the Secretary of State's approval, Damien Green, it was a DWP commissioned review, then number 10, and a place on the grid. Uh, and lots of things had been backed up because of... Uh, of what happened in the summer, so eventually published uh, at the beginning of December 2016. And when you get one of these large documents published, I mean, what really happens? I mean, does it, I, I don't want to sort of disparage it or build it up, but does it, do you feel it actually gets in there and makes a difference? Well, it all depends on timing. I, you know, is it published at the right time in a political cycle? So let's say that it had been published within six months of the end of a government, that there wouldn't be much time for that government to, to, do, anything. to do anything with. Have the politicians who commissioned it changed as, as you are, are doing it? And then, because you're independent, and I think it's crucially important to hold on to that independence and perhaps the reason why I've done three reports, is they may not like what you're yes, saying. Right. It may not be fit for purpose at the time. And indeed, it may sit on a, a shelf. But I've always taken the view that I think this subject, the whole subject of keeping people healthy and able to be in work, is so important that I haven't really minded which government I've done it for. And I've always felt I could go back um, and give them a little push or a little niggle mm -hmm. um, if what I had said wasn't really making progress. I felt it, it, it cut across party politics. 
So I've had disappointments, I've had successes. But if we go back to, say, your 2008 report on the health of the working population, do you think that actually things you recommended then have stuck? Well, for example, the law was changed and we got a new medical certificate, a fit note. Okay. If I look at what's happened to the fit note, I'd like it changed now, having seen it in action. And you do learn when you put new things into action. A fit-for-work service that was piloted, that's been the forerunner of now what the government are trying to do, which is the national fit-for-work yeah. service. So, but yeah. I've seen other things. Um, for example, in my second review, I did make some tentative recommendations about changing um, the WCA, which, of course, is a much, uh, you know, debated assessment. Hang on, the WCA, the work, work capability right. assessment, which was ignored. Okay. So... I have to say, to confess to a bit of cynicism about when you see the title of your review, and I, I guess I just have to ask, is it in fact a government way of trying to stop paying people benefits if they are uh, carrying on in active addiction? Well, as you probably know, one of the questions given to me in, uh, in the reference uh, for the, uh, uh, the terms of reference was the review, I was asked the question whether it would or could ever be appropriate for government to stop paying or reducing the benefits of any addict who would not go into treatment or indeed return to treatment. Some people have called that the mandation question. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, okay, so we will definitely come back to that because it seems to me it's really important. But let's start with, I mean, because you set out very clearly in this report, what are the facts? Where are we with addiction. Uh, I know obesity has got less research attached to it, it's got some though. Where, where do we stand at the moment with addiction in terms of numbers, treatment, etc.? I think, if I may, Rosie, I'd like to keep addiction on one side okay, and, let's and, talk and obesity, come to obesity later. As probably most people here will know, the opportunity for people who have a severe dependence on alcohol or a severe dependence on opiates or, or cocaine to be in employment is is very low. Um, a, a few may manage that, um, but but it, it, it is a problem and many people who are in our benefit system, mm -hmm. which I was looking at, um, are, are indeed um, addicted to uh, drugs or alcohol. The number that are said to be there when you look at the statistics that are available are 90,000, but we know that is an underestimate because we know that there are about recorded uh, 300,000 um, severe uh, addicted um, opiate or, or cocaine. That's uh, separate from alcohol. Yes, separate from alcohol. And interestingly, again, about known 300,000 severely dependent alcohol um, addicts. Remember, there's about 12.3 million people in the population that we know are at risk mm -hmm. of becoming dependent on alcohol. But the numbers that we can actually record, 300,000 drugs, 300,000 for alcohol, but only 90,000 that are identifiable in the benefit system itself. And one of the big problems I found, and I've laid it squarely out to government is this lack of disclosure. Um, 
I understand why people perhaps do not want to disclose that they have an addiction if they're seeking to get government support through benefits. But the problem is that lack of data which goes, let's say, for example, with a medical certificate. Your GP gives you a certificate. It may not well say that I have a problem with alcohol. It may say I'm anxious and depressed. And if that is the note that follows you from the doctor's surgery to the Department of Work and Pensions through to uh, the benefit system itself, to Job Centre Plus, the fact that there is not appropriate disclosure, um, one way I've described it is as a car crash, mm -hmm. because you have people who need help and often need um, health-related help, housing help, a whole lot of help, that have said, really, they are depressed. The people in the benefit system, um, the work coaches, um, cannot ask any medical or health-related questions. So it is entirely possible that you hit that system. They do not know that you have an addiction. You are dealt with as if you do not have an addiction. Maybe job interviews will be recommended for you, updating your CV. But you, you can't possibly go to them. You are not fit enough or well enough to go. So I cannot stress too much how, how much of a block not having data is. But we don't have data because people do not trust the DWP. Mm -hmm. And the people who work in our job centres have not had the training to deal, if you like, with different conditions. And they are in a position where they cannot ask any questions either. So it, it quite frankly, is a car crash waiting to happen. And therefore, the idea of being helping to get people back into work um, already starts with a lot of problems. So is that the doctor's fault? I mean, if we go to the start of that chain, when he writes the note about an addict saying they're depressed, why does the doctor make them as... Well, I, you know, I am a medic, mm -hmm. and, and so I can understand that what my GP colleagues are doing, and it's mainly GPs who will be yeah. writing these notes, is it is advocacy, in a way, for your patient. The person in front of you, you will know they have a family, you will probably know some of their concerns. If that person says to you, well, Dr. Smith, I don't want the fact that I have an alcohol problem put on my medical certificate, it's quite likely it won't be written there because the doctor, in a way, is trying to be supportive of and help the patient. My argument would be that in the long run, that doesn't help that person because it doesn't help them get any of the support that I believe is so, necessary. So if you're unemployed and you're addicted to whichever substance and you get that put on your paper, and it arrives at the job centre, what happens to you? You mean if, if it admits that you are... No, no, it says this person has an alcohol dependency okay. problem. So if what will your average job centre, because they seem to, A, they vary quite a lot, yeah. what, what will be the outcomes and why do they want to hide it? Do you mean why do the people want to hide well, it? Well, let's, let's say what happens to them and then... Okay. Um, first of all, I think it is fair to say job centres vary. 
I visited some excellent job centres in doing um, this report where their work coaches did understand and have knowledge of the problems of someone with addiction. So if you meet the system and you are known to be um, an addict, a, a good job centre would help making sure you have had the offer, first of all, of treatment. In the very best job centres, there may be peer support workers, that is, people who've had your problem mm -hmm. and are there to help you understand it isn't just a big dark hole, that, that there can be help and to help you see you probably can get work. But before you can ever get anywhere near work, it may be that what's got to happen is some support through treatment. And then the job centre makes allowances. It's allowed, for example, to give you several months of financial support where there'll be absolutely no requirement for you to consider immediately being looking for a job. But you have to, in that time, go and get some treatment. Well, it's recommended to you that you get some treatment. You can't force anybody into treatment, and it would be a negotiated um, state. I felt very strongly that the one thing that was missing was many of these people, and, and I met so many addicts in doing this work, were not in good health, and I don't mean their addiction. I, I mean, if it, it, they often had other medical problems, mm -hmm. or they just were not looking after themselves. And I say in my report, and I did say I thought government should do a pilot and indeed mandate it during that pilot, that the minute you hit the benefit system, what you ought to be able to have access to is a health professional who will go through your problems with you. I don't just mean your addiction mm -hmm. problems, but really help you plan how can you move from here to a better state. Um, within, within um, the system, and, I, and, and that isn't um, available at the moment, but certainly in the better job centres, there, there is a mixture of much better informed work coaches, often peer support, um, and most people, of course not all, but most people would like not to be where they are. Yes. I mean, I spoke to a lot of, of, of addicted people and the four things they told me, and it still rings in my brain because there were two messages they gave me which I've never forgotten, was one, they wanted a home, mm -hmm. but somewhere preferably away from their friends who were addicts. They wanted work mm -hmm. and not any old job. They didn't want to be treated with disrespect. They wanted... Um, if possible, to have a partner, and if possible, children. They were there for, and I heard that over and over again, and I also heard that at the present we have what I'll call clinical treatment. We get people clean, and we think we've done a fantastic job, so you're no longer addicted to, or I'm no longer addicted to cocaine. But you have to remember when you're an addict, you spend your day either with the effect of your drug or your alcohol, or you're out there getting your next fix. So you're thinking about how can you either get your next four bottles of vodka, 
or your next shot of heroin, you're extremely busy. Once you are clean, what they told me is there's nothing at the moment but a dark hole. You come out of treatment, and unless you have got activity, unless you've got some purpose, you are not going to go to the British Museum and wander around and look at things in the British Museum. You need someone to have actually helped you know what you're going to do when you leave treatment. Otherwise, it's a void. And most of us wouldn't easily cope with that. And it is very easy, therefore, to go back and go around this terrible circle of b being helped, having become clean, and then you go, you go back and you will see anyone who's had a look at the report. Central to this report is, I say to government, please no longer think of treatment as getting someone clean, but can we have from the beginning of treatment mm -hmm. um, what's called individual placement support called IPS, which has been well tried for uh, severe mental ill health, for schizophrenia, and it is about giving someone a caseworker employment support right at the beginning of treatment. You may not be able to discuss work at the beginning of treatment, but if you've got someone who can take you on the journey, the aim of IPS is that you come out of treatment with activity, mm -hmm. preferably activity which earns you some money, it may not be, but the whole point is to find you sustainable um, employment. And, and, and really, the whole of this review is about seeing whether we can't make it not 7% of, say, um, opiate addicts who have a job, some up to, say, 35%. I'm not foolish enough to think I'm going to get 90%. But I think you could absolutely improve where we are now. So it's very similar for um, recidivism coming out of prison. Absolutely. I mean, that you let someone out after X years inside and they have 35 quid and they're on the street. Yes. And if they don't have a job, you're back there. I mean, Can I just say something about yes. prisons? Um, because I visited prisons and I visited various kinds of prisons and I visited a prison uh, where what you've just said was absolutely happening. I went to visit some women prisoners um, and all were on more than their first visit to, to prison. And what they said to me, they would have, you know, 35 to 50 pounds when they left. Um, they had nowhere to go mm -hmm. and live. Uh, they had no planned activity. Yes. And one of the women said to me, and my pimp will be at the end of the road. And I'll be back. And I'll be back on the job, I'll be back on the heroin, and I'll be back in here. On the other hand, I went to a fantastic open prison in the north of England where it, it, it really was a, a proper attempt um, to rehabilitate people who were coming out of very long sentences. They do two years in this open prison. But the whole idea was while they were in that open phase in the local community, they would be found jobs, they would be going out to work every day, coming back in, so that when they left, they had, they, somewhere to they go. had a job. 
and attached to this particular prison, there was a wonderful um, organization called Jobs, Friends and Houses, and another one quite close by called Recycling Lives that did yep, exactly what they said. They recycled lives to give people purpose. So did you look almost exclusively at people who were on the benefit system, or did you look at um, how we deal with, say, alcoholism or addiction for people that are in work? No, I looked, I looked mainly, but my brief was to look at people who were in the benefit system. But because one of my briefs was, how do you persuade employers? Mm. Um, to, to give someone a chance. To give someone a chance. Um, I did look, not, not in great detail, but I did look at what employers do for people who are in work but admit they have an alcohol problem. And, of course, again, that varies. There's some wonderful examples of support. There are other organisations that do not have in place exactly what you would wish them to have um, in place, but what nearly every employer I spoke to said, if you were one of their employees, then they would expect, as a duty of care, if you said, look, I'm having a real drink problem, <laughs> to give you support, um, to enable you to find help. And they saw that as within the, their, if you like, bigger duty of care. On the other hand, when I said, will you take some of my people, um, it wasn't the same sort of answer. How would they know, as a matter of interest? Um, well, if they'd had a prison sentence. Okay, but that would only um, be if they'd had a then, then that would um, uh, that would come out. Well, they wouldn't necessarily so, but but you know, if you've got gaps in your CV. Yes. If you've got gaps in your CV, where have you been during those gaps? You may have been in treatment and had time off, um, and so they didn't. They didn't always know, but if you were, of course, in a safety-critical job, again, there would be questions um, certainly um, asked. But what I said, so what would persuade you? What is it that I have to tell government that would make you think differently? And we know, of course, there are companies like Timpsons yep. um, that really yes, they help. Really work with they really help with... Uh, with people who've had an addiction problem. Another very good company, they don't talk about it, but they do an excellent job, actually, is Marks and & Spencers. And I couldn't get many companies to allow me to put in my report examples of what they did. Even when they were doing good things, they almost kept it um, below the radar. But what they said is you need to de-risk it for us. <coughs> We yeah. might consider it if you How would, do you de-risk? How do you de-risk? And I thought they would tell me what they meant was the government was to give them more money. But they didn't, on the whole, mean that at all. What they meant was, could they have, on the end of a phone, easily accessible, if you like, an employment advisor, who the person, the person of the returning... Um, person who was now hopefully free of their addiction knew and who they trusted and who the company could call on. So if I was a bit wobbly at work today and I was causing a bit of havoc, um, that person would deal with it. So it was, it was like having caseworkers mm -hmm. that they would know would help. You might say, well, how long does that help have to be for? You know, because this costs 
money. It probably, I think, if you're being realistic, I thought you needed to say there is someone for maybe at least a year. And perhaps even a bit longer. But there may be people who would never need it because many companies do good things for their workers, which anyone returning would, would embrace. So small companies said they might well appreciate a small grant because they would be taking someone in when they haven't got a lot of elasticity. So let, let's talk a bit about the quality of treatment that people get. Um, Prisons are notorious for not having enough. I mean, I know I'm involved in a charity called the Rehabilitation of Addicted Prisoners, and it, it helps put AA into certain prisons, but it's in a very limited amount. It also seems that you know a lot of the publicly funded treatment centres are a extremely oversubscribed, um, reasonably short term, um, and I mean I. I've been through treatment, I'm an alcoholic, I'm very public about it, and you know, I, I was able to benefit from paying. Um, but what you hear on the other side is that uh, it's not that easy. Well, it's, it's interesting you should say that, because when we actually um, looked at the figures about how long do you wait, if you're an alcoholic, to get treatment in the public sector, it's about no more than three weeks in most areas of the country. And what is amazing is the number of people who actually don't take up the offer of treatment. Almost, I think there's a level, particularly of alcoholism, where, where people feel they're coping. Yeah. So I don't think there is necessarily a long waiting list, although recent cuts to, to, to uh, councils may have right. changed that. But what I did sense um, was there was a variation in the clinical quality of, 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 of the, the places. Of the traces. And whether it was rehabilitation yeah. in-house, you know, you yeah, were yeah. an inpatient, or whether it was done on a, a sort of out day, a, a daily basis. And the thing I want to change is it's almost a complacency which I didn't like, um, was if you were a drug addict and you'd you'd been in treatment, and let's say you were left on methadone, um, as long as you were not causing trouble oh, to the justice system, um, you were at home and the family was secure, I didn't feel there was enough fire in the belly to really be ambitious and, and have aspiration for people who had these problems. I consider them chronic diseases. Mm -hmm. I do not consider them a lifestyle choice. How many people do we have uh, existing on methadone in this country now? Does anyone quite know? Uh, Rosie, I, I, I don't know the answer to that. But, uh, you know, I, it must be recorded because you collect it, don't you? So one of the things that I've always understood, which seems very interesting, is that some study they did in America, which if, if you were more or less you know, a shotgun by your employer at your head, which is you lose your job unless you go to treatment, had exactly the same statistical success outcome as whether you went there voluntary, which in a way flew right in the face of, um, uh, you know, you could take a horse to water and you can't make them drink. Um, and I, I kind of understand that because I think that no one who is in an addictive, active addiction wants to be there and that actually you're desperate for the way out and that if the way out has to come by some gun, 
So that takes me back to where, in a way, we started, which was what is the kind of prognosis if you, if you are an ongoing addict? Do you, do you say at some point, I cut off your benefits, or do you suggest that you just go on? What does the society do, and what has got the best chance of, a, of a, making a healthier person? Well, I, I look very carefully at the question as that if you, if you did cut off benefits and say you were, unless you go to treatment was the question. Sort of, um, yeah. To me, that was the exact question to me. When you look worldwide, um, and it, it, it doesn't matter where you look, there is no evidence um, that insisting or forcing someone into treatment will get you employment. And remember, that was the question I was asked. Okay. I was asked, if, if someone goes into treatment and if we can force them into treatment, well, they'll get a job, won't they? Well, the truth is, treatment does not get you a job. Would it get you sobriety? It will get you... It will certainly give you other added societal values. And, and I think nobody disputes that. Um, and... And, and therefore, I think that when you see people going into treatment and coming out and going back in, um, they will hopefully, and in many, many cases, um, and NICE has done an independent review of saying, is treatment value for money? Right. Um, and, and does it have societal value? Um, yes, it does. But if, you're, if the question as to me was, will this enable people to get into employment, no, because they meet this big black hole of, well, I'm now clean, but what am I going to do tomorrow? Yeah. Yeah. And so, uh, and there was evidence in the USA where they did indeed do a form of mandation, not the one the government asked me to look at precisely, but all it did was fuel the justice system and all it did was make more people commit criminal acts. Because they'd run out of money. Because they'd run out of money. So, uh, you know, and I think what you would... You, 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 I don't think there would be certainly any benefit as far as employment's concerned. This is much more complicated than mm. just telling someone, um, you know, that they are... that they're clean. Because I imagine, and you probably know much better than I, that people in that position really lack self-confidence. Absolutely. Resilience yes. has gone. Any sense of empowerment yeah. has gone. They were the things... Um, and, of course, with drug addiction, un unlike um, alcohol, drug addiction does gather, unfortunately, with those people who live in poverty, have had a poor education, yeah. live in poor communities, and, and therefore there are multiple factors making it very difficult for them to, to get back to, to ever get anywhere. And what, given that we're in a, a climate now, more government cuts uh, coming towards us and cuts in these areas, um, what's, the, what's the single thing you hope they don't cut? Um, what worries you? Well, I would, I would definitely worry if, if the local council's ability to do treatment... Yes. I mean, you, you, treatment must be... But I think the problem is that although written down, and you can see this in a government paper of 2010, it does say that when people go into treatment, one should also pay attention to their housing, etc., etc. 
but I don't think that has that happened that anyway. And what I've tried to do in, in, in this report is bring them back to the fact that this requires, I'm afraid, some investment. But I think the good news is DWP, of course, this was before the announcement of the election, um, in their uh, report on workless families, has announced that they are going to support my um, double-blind controlled trial on individual placement support. Right. Um, Public Health England are going to do it. Yeah. Um, so at least I will see, I hope, the effect of them putting employment into treatment. They've also um, publicly announced that they are going to take forward the peer support that I recommended they put into the... So at the job centres? At the job centres. Right. And they've also permitted um, addicts to have access to what is called the Access to Work Scheme, a scheme run by DWP, mm -hmm. um, which would give you support in getting to work, you know, various practical things mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that will enable your employer um, to support you better. So I... I mean, they haven't responded to every one. There were only 13 recommendations. I always recommend if you write a government review, no more than 12, if possible, because <laughs> the more you give them, the more chance they have to choose the least important. So it's very, very important not to give them 30. Um, and I gave them actually 13, of which probably three were truly important. Yes, I, th I totally agree with you. This thing of factoring work into recovery is, and again, for anyone coming out of prison, it has to be huge. So um, let's now move on to um, obesity. Um, was it your idea to tack it on to the report, or did they say, will you also look at this one while you're at it? No, they gave me the three, they gave me the three conditions. Together. Um, alcohol, uh, drugs, and obesity. Um, I presume that they thought obesity was an addiction. Right. Uh, anyway, it was really fairly simple to do the obesity bit because actually there's so little information. I was asked again, does obesity influence your ability to work? And for those people in the benefit system who are recorded as obese, how do we get them back into work? Well. The first thing is that there's only 160,000 people recorded in the benefit system um, as being um, obese. We know that that cannot be true. You're only allowed to go into the benefit system with one primary leading diagnosis. So it can't say on your form, diabetes, obesity, Why? arthritis. Well, I've told them it should. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't make any <laughs> sense. Most of us don't have one thing. Yeah. Most of us, Especially certainly by my obesity, age, have got, you know. You've got a lot of things. Got a lot of things. Um, and, and we think, we, the analysts and the economists on the team think, but this is only a guess, that if you look at the people in the benefit system with diabetes, heart disease, probably the number is nearer to 880,000. Right. That's the calculation. But I, I would put great big warning signs around that because it is an estimate. But to put it very simply, being obese 
does not stop you being in the workplace mm. until you are grossly obese. And you can do many, but not all jobs. But there is evidence that being obese means you will take more short-term sick leave and you take more long-term sick leave. And the long-term sick leave is due to the complications mm -hmm. of obesity. Um, Backaches. Backache, osteoarthritis of the knee, <coughs> diabetes. And um, although there's not a lot of evidence, being obese does affect your ability to get certain jobs. Of course people say there's no bias, but that, in fact, is not true. And there's some evidence uh, from the states about the wages you can earn. There's one study which shows that obese white American women do earn less, whereas, interestingly, black and Hispanic obese women did not earn less. I don't really completely understand that. But being obese um, does, I think, affect, if you like, your, your, your potential in the workplace. Um, treatment of obesity, uh, we went and looked at lots of treatment centres. And What are the treatments, apart well, from gastric bypass? Uh, well, you, you which know Which the things. National Health keeps saying is the best and most effective way because it costs uh, 17 grand and it bang is over huge amount of money. Other things are that you go to Weight Watchers, which okay. may be purchased by right. or um, purchased what, by your doctor, or you're by the by the NHS through, right. an, and you may be they may link that up to cognitive behavioural therapy, okay. um, or it may be linked up to an exercise regime. There are various, and and I've visited one or two places that do it very well, but the maximum weight loss. Or, or rather the average weight loss recorded in many of these is no more than 10 kilograms. So that actually, if you are seriously obese, that you're still seriously yeah. obese at the other side of it. And so what we said to government, and I feel this again pretty strongly, is please will you go out there and do some work on the effect of obesity on employment, not perhaps so much for all of us, but for the future generations, because we know we have obesity as a problem in our school children, um, that you know, one in 10 school children are overweight when they go into school. It's more than that. And then by the, they're in grade six, mm. it's one in six. Mm. No, no, it's so, really you know, a it, problem. It, so really we need, we need much <coughs> more um, evidence on its effect um, on employment. And, we also said the government should think about, um, with employers, perhaps thinking about the sort of guidance that, mm -hmm. that we produce. But I couldn't find, there was, just, there was just not enough evidence out there for me to be sure uh, of, of what its effect was. But I think its effect on the economy and on the NHS it's is massive. Is massive. But, I mean, again, with the same issue around um, addictions. I mean, do you, in the end of the day, do you recommend that if you're unemployed and you're either obese or you're a continuing active addict, benefits just go on? Well, you've got the choice, haven't you, of saying, oh, we're a caring society, or are we going to have all of these people and their families, you in know... In a destitute state. In a destitute state. And um, the DWP recently reported the number 
of children that are living um, in families where one, one of their, either their mother or their father um, is an, a, a, an, a, an addict, an, either an opium or a, a crack addict, and in the, or have one or more parents that are addicted to alcohol. And I think, I hope I've got these figures the right way round, that it is 200,000 children uh, live in, her, in a house where one of their parents is, is alcoholic, and I think it was 160, 165 in a house with uh, someone with, uh, with an opiate addiction. So, you know, this is not just about the individual, mm. is it? No, not at all. This is about, um, about their families. And, uh, again, of course, I, I didn't... I met quite a lot of people with an addiction problem. I didn't meet anyone, actually, who particularly wanted it to continue. They, it, they, may, they may not know no, no, how to I mean, stop. I, don't, that's, I think I was trying to say, I mean, you wouldn't... You, nobody in the world would want to carry on with it. That's why sometimes... I mean, I think it's quite interesting, the, uh, the thing they do in Miami that I know Boris tried to bring into London, which was about, you know, instead of sending people off to prison, if they're caught being drunk and disorderly in the street, you you try and you put a bracelet. And I remember someone saying to me, "Did I think this was a good idea?" I mean, this seems draconian. And actually, in my view, it is a good idea because anyway, any day you spend not drinking, if you're an alcoholic, it's good. is a good day because you don't harm anyone else and you don't harm yourself. And and any day you spend sober is gives you a chance to think. Actually, this mm. is not such a bad thing after all. I'll do it. So all those things that have a uh, a slightly forced... Um, I think it's very, very difficult. All I'm mm. trying to say mm. is that mm. sometimes I think it can help because it, it, it seems so impossible to, to get, get out of mm. the mm. situation mm. that you're mm. in. Mm. And uh, mm. I think sometimes that... I don't know, you know, I, I, can, I can't imagine personally finding my salvation at the job centre. <laughs> uh, mm. I, I was, you know, I was lucky, put it like that, yeah. you know. Well, you hope difficult. that not just the job centre, but that, that but the community is, that the if there's center. a good general practice. I mean, you hope yes, that I there's a whole, a whole lot of other good things. Um, and often, patients will listen to their medical advice. Not always. But, I mean, doctors are notoriously bad about diet. I mean, they know very little. And, <laughs> you know, instead of saying to someone with incipient diabetes, actually... In, if you eat the right things for six weeks, your blood sugar levels will change and you'll be fine. Mm. The impulse to just shove someone on a pill when oh. type 2 has arrived. Yes, when in fact most type 2 diabetes is entirely controllable exactly. by losing weight um, and, uh, and, and a diet. So I, and, and again, in the medical curriculum, we were always taught to diagnose very well and then treat and I personally think there needs to be a lot more emphasis on public health. And if you yeah, think about it, we do not do prevention well. Very few doc uh, patients go to their doctors to say, well, I think I'm a bit overweight, now what can I do to lose it? Because yes. you sort of feel you're wasting the doctor's time. And yet, and, and yet, that is crucial to the health of the nation. So, okay, before we open it up, I mean, how, how could we... Uh, change things so we took those things more, I don't know, just took more Nothing. personal responsibility? Um, well, I think two things. I, I've been a great advocate for saying if it can't happen 
if you like, in primary care. I believe public health in the workplace is crucially important, and I've spent the last 10 years trying to persuade public and private employers to think of themselves as providing primary prevention, mm -hmm. things that would encourage you um, to eat well, yep. things that would encourage you to join the walking club, mm -hmm. that would make giving up smoking easier because I might allow you to go and get some help, perhaps um, in working time. Work champions who really believe in this yes. can absolutely um, do it. And about obesity, I just would like to end by saying I was president of the Royal College of Physicians when I had to go head to head with the government on smoking in public places. And, and of course, there was a lot of pushback from the government. We were saying this has to stop. Um, and of course, you can bring up the example that your mother lived to be 90 and she <laughs> smoked 30 cigarettes a day. But three things happened in smoking, How? and I really wish they would happen in obesity. One, there was regulation. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, there, there already was regulation, and, and then there was more regulation about smoking in public places. The health, the evidence was so plain. Mm -hmm. I mean, you, you, if, even if you wanted to run away from it, smoking causes lung disease, yeah, yeah. etc. But then the most important thing, perhaps, was the public didn't like it. The public came on the whole not to be, want to be around people who were smoking. You don't want your clothes yep. to, to smell of smoke. You don't want to eat your food in a restaurant. And I would ask, why have we not got there with obesity? Why do we think it is perfectly okay for children to still be growing up in families where obesity is the norm? So what would you do? Well, I think you've got to do a lot at school. <laughs> I, 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 you, you know, I mean, the I, government chucked out, Theresa May's first act was to take a red pen to the obesity report. I know, I know. She cut out all the things to do with advertising to children. Huge thing. I agree. I mean, I think, uh, you know, as a medic, I would probably say this, wouldn't I? I, I do think you, you, you probably have to be more firmer on regulation. Well, I mean, I totally agree with you, but I mean, if you could do three regulations right here and now, or however many you like, what would they be? Well, I think, I think sugar is obviously becoming to be... Yep. Do you, uh, it, it appears to be more important um, than in fat. I think we've moved some way with salt. Yes, we've but, done that. But, but I, th I think we could go further. And then, you know, what, what are companies allowed to advertise and do? Yeah, yeah, I, you yeah, know, yeah. It's, it, it, it is such an obvious... Problem and, and I'll end by saying that I, as a child, was obese. Go on. <laughs> I know I I grew up in a uh, in a poor family in the Midlands, um, and I had a gym slip at school, and the gym slip was navy with pleats. It's going back an awfully long way. I was so fat that my gym slip wouldn't pleat, and I spent my teenage years at school running away from the sports field. I never, I never really played. I used to go and hide in the loo mm -hmm. at the grammar school I was at, anything to, to, to not be subjected. I hated the gym classes. And you know, I remember with the, the school dance when I went into the sixth form, I tried to find a dress that I could fit into. Ouch, ouch, ouch. Uh, I mean, I rest my case. 
you know, it's what it does to children. I've yes. lived through that. And I think the fact that we, we seem to think that this is okay, and you go into stores when they've now, you, you think you're buying a size 10, but you're not, you know, um, they're really fooling you, it's really another. Yeah, no, no, a no. Whole, the new normal. The new normal is, is very, very scary. And, and the other thing I think is crucially important is that we all be active. I don't want you all to go and run the marathon or uh, uh, even go, but I think activity every day um, there's some very good research out there now from Southampton University that shows that if we do not use our musculoskeletal system, <clears throat> I don't mean having arthritis, I am a rheumatologist, I just mean using what you've got. If you become what I'll call musculoskeletally frail, and if you can't sort of do this sort of thing ten times easily, I mean, there are five tests, um, it does affect your ability to be a sustainable worker, but it also affects your ability to live a long and active life. Anyway, we've gone a long way from alcohol and obesity. <laughs> well, they're very linked. Okay, um, please come in. Sorry, we've slightly overshot how long I wanted to talk for. Um, have we got mics? There's lots of hands. Um, start here, then come up to the gentleman in the front. Thank you. And then I'll come to you next. Okay, thank you. Right. Thank you. I, I regret I haven't read your report, so I do apologise. I'll rectify that afterwards. But did you look at any link to disability benefits? And actually, was it helpful or, or did it hinder to take people out of the system and actually label them then instead disabled? Um, I didn't look specifically uh, at that. I mean, what I was looking at was... I, of course, was looking at people who had a health-related benefit. But if you mean, was I looking at, at the PIPs, the, the new, what used to be the disability allowance? No, but the people I was studying, some of whom would have certainly have been eligible um, for that. But, but, but my, my remit was to look at people um, going in through the normal system either to be on employment support allowance, which of course um, is health-related, or job seekers, uh, seeking plus, um, or indeed people who had lost their jobs and turned up at the benefit system. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Um, it's a question for both of you, really. It'll be obvious why in a minute. You've discussed addiction to both legal and illegal drugs. So what's your view about this drug which causes short-term psychosis commit entry drug, should we be legalising cannabis? Mm -hmm. You can tell from the way I played the question. Um, I didn't, I mean, I certainly didn't look at that as part of, um, and I don't know the research very well um, at all. Um, I think it's worried me, and I, I, I really don't know the literature, so I, should, I need to be awfully careful here, that it, in some cases cannabis can certainly activate things like schizophrenia. But from my point of view, whether you were, whether the drug is legalised or not legalised, these people would have come within... I mean, they would have been people who I might have wanted um, to get back into, into work. But I don't think I'm expert enough. I don't know what R Rosie thinks about that. Um, well, I, no, I want... I want questions to come to you briefly. I think that what they're seeing now in the American states that have legalised it is 
uh, a great, and certainly in Colorado, a real reduction in the amount of people who are smoking skunk, um, increased taxation, um, proper regulation, and at the moment it's looking good. I think skunk is totally terrifying. A friend of mine who's a therapist said, I would infinitely rather my daughter was addicted to heroin than, than took skunk, because you can come it's back so from cool. any of these addictions, and skunk can mess you up forever. Yeah. I think it's horrible, and I, I think sometimes that it's a bit like saying you walk into an off-license and there's no labels on the bottles, and you could be told to drink a whole gallon of vodka in the same way you might be told that it's okay to drink a gallon of beer, you know, you don't know. I think it's frightening. I think there is a case to be made, but it's another subject. <laughs> so another question for Carol. Okay, okay yes, you anyway. in the back and then we'll come to you. Um, I was just interested in what you were saying about smoking and it becoming socially unacceptable. Do you think that um, it would help the problem if perhaps you weren't so accepting of obesity, maybe if that was more socially unacceptable? Oh, that's exactly what I would like it to be, more socially unacceptable as, as a big problem. I mean, we do need to keep in mind, um, and it, it's because there is a lot of the research is going on in Cambridge, that um, many more genes have been found to be associated with obesity. It's the work of Steve O'Reilly uh, and uh, Dr. Farouk. Um, and, and he... Steve tells me it is immensely more complicated oh, really? um, th than we might have thought it was. You know, yes, there are certain genes, but I think genetic influences. So I think we have to bear that in mind. But then this great increase in obesity is certainly not due to a change in the, I don't think, in the gene pool in, in that way. So it seems that the public doesn't mind it. You know, I've seen no feeling that it, it would be a really good thing if we all tried to, to, to be of a more normal weight and more active. It, 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 it hasn't caught on. There's never been, you know, there's been no public campaigns that have ever indicated that. I mean, I think, although I don't practice clinical medicine anymore, that if I were discussing with a patient, um, their size, I would have to now use very careful words. There are words that doctors are not supposed to use mm -hmm. for fear of offending the patient. So you could always talk to somebody about smoking. Yeah, you always so felt isn't it? you always felt you could have a sensible conversation and you could offer them the help which was there and you could give them the facts. I couldn't sit in front of someone and ever use the word fat. And I, it, 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 it interests me how we seem to be in increasingly accepting of school children yeah. um, who are obese and all the problems that brings. And, and I don't see any, any movement or, or urge to see it different. I think, that, I think there's an urge, but... So, lady who's got the mic, just in the second row, thanks. Um, back in 1991, I heard an item on the radio. It was the Derek Cooper food programme, where a junior um, minister had been lobbied by the food companies under John Major's government to stop the teaching of cooking in schools. And Derek Cooper said, we will rue this day. And uh, apparently, this stopped... 
and it was a lobby by food manufacturers because they can then sell crap yep. food yep. and people can't cook. Yep. And I think back in 1970, there was no obesity. No. There was none. And what happened after 1970 was uh, the food manufacturers um, found a cheap way of making sugar. Um, and so uh, they put it into all the foods, blah, blah, blah. So I think there's a huge vested interest in food manufacturers funding political parties who will not take this on. You go into, you go into um, that shop, the newsagent uh, W.H. Smith, and you're offered bargain one pound big block of chocolate. And I say, have you been told to sell me this? And he says, yes, I have got certain number I have to shift every day. That is my target. So the question is, how do we get governments to take responsibility for the systemic cause of this? Um, and I think you've mentioned that in your later piece. Um, well, I think, first of all, just to go back to what you said about schools, I'm old enough that I went to school and did domestic science and, and you know, did both cooking and, and sewing. And I think the fact that now um, we grow up with so few people understanding anything about nutrition, um, I, I think we could question that. As you will know, I mean, the Royal College of Physicians um, has pushed and pushed and pushed at government uh, and continues to push um, on obesity and on, on, uh, uh, on, on companies. I mean, I think we all can do our part there. Um, it's, uh, it, it is not, as far as I can see, in, uh, it's never been the interest of government to really be firm with these companies. Absolutely not. It's, um, just, it's outrageous. Um, and that would... And I think, you know, it's not just W.H. Smith's. You go to Marks and Spencer's, you go to, to anywhere. Um, you don't see apples and fruit when you, you go out. But just to cheer you up a bit, and it's, it's a pretty much a lone man fight at the moment, but Simon Stevens, who's the chief executive yeah. of the NHS, has got an absolute war um, on those shops that are always in the front of our hospitals. You're supposed to be going into a healthy place, but you go in and there's, you know, Starbucks coffee or not Kentucky Fried Chicken, whatever it is. Um, and, and Simon has really now um, getting to grips, which is difficult because they're long-term contracts, and also um, really trying to change what is happening in nutrition uh, for the staff of the NHS. You're probably very aware that we do have a problem of obesity in, in the staff of the NHS. You know, in London, we only have... There are um, only two hospitals in London that have uh, cooked food in the night. Every I, other it, nurse has to depend on what's in the microwave or whatever. It's 28% of our <laughs> hospitals at the moment provide proper food at night. That's all. Yeah, and, I mean, that's, that's from a Royal College of Physicians survey. In the day, at least over 90% do, but I don't know how many of you go into hospital can but I've been into a lot recently in doing some work for Simon. You don't see when you walk in the healthy food. I mean, the first thing you usually see, you know, are the baked beans and the mash. And, and the and, chips. And the chips. And all this is, is uh, feeds us 
uh, visually, but, but at least. And Simon has put a sequin into the NHS, which probably most of you don't know what a sequin is, but it's a quality measurement, and he withholds a certain amount of money uh, to an organisation unless you do certain things which add to the quality of care. He's put one in for the quality of care of the staff of the NHS, um, and it withholds up to four or five million per hospital if you don't fulfil requirements um, that are certainly measurable about health and well-being. So I think you can see green shoots of, of, of work, uh, but, but that's not, of course, at an industrial nature. Carol, I'm afraid we now, we've had the red light on for about a minute. I'm really, really sorry. We're going to have to stop. Please join me in thanking Carol Black very much. <laughs> So you have to come and help me write my obesity policy.